0: We are excited to finally get here. The next time we arrive in Cedar Rapids, it'll be our whole family, uh, our own cars, we will be here to stay. And so it's just a few weeks away and we're really eager to be here and be part of what God's doing um, in and through Stonebridge. Uh, God's doing some really exciting stuff. Um, but what, uh, it's what God is doing, what God has done that makes the difference. It's not what we do for Him, And we're going to see that in a pretty striking and powerful way in our passage this morning. So if you have a Bible with you, or an app on your phone, I invite you to find your way to the book of Isaiah, chapter 52 and 53. If you open right to the middle, it's in the Old Testament, so if you open right to the middle, you'll probably land somewhere in Psalms. You take a right, and you head a few books, and you'll get to Isaiah 52. And please stand with me as we read God's Word together. out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide with him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, And makes intercession for the transgressors. This is God's Word. Lord, we ask that you would bless us as we look into your Word, that you would give us ears to hear you and eyes to see you, and that your Spirit would prepare our hearts to be changed by the truth of your gospel. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, for an entrepreneur, one of the most satisfying things in the world is building a successful family business to start something new and see it grow from the ground up and and thrive. But one of the most difficult things then in the world is giving that business up and passing it on to the next generation. Uh, There's an article, uh, a 1971 article from the Harvard Business Review that explains this dynamic a bit says, for the founder, the business is an instrument, an extension of himself. So he has great difficulty giving up his baby, his mistress, his instrument, his source of social power, or whatever else the business may mean to him. He also refuses to retire despite repeated promises to do so. And if you've ever served in a family business, you may know exactly what this author is talking about there's this fear that none of my children are going to be able to run the company the way I think it needs to be run. None of them are going to be able to be successful, even though they might actually do a better job and see it grow more. And, and, and so the founder holds on. They, they don't want to share it. They're unwilling to let it go. They go to bed meditating on Ecclesiastes 2.18-19. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. God's situation is just the opposite. God wants to share the family business with us, if you will. He wants to include us in his kingdom, to enroll us in his work, in fact, we were created for that very purpose. If you you think about uh, the book of Genesis and how it describes humanity made, being made in the image of God, that, that language in the image of God, it is first and foremost language of relationship, of being God's children, just as we are made in the image of God. So, uh, Adam, we're told in chapter 5, father to son in his own likeness, after his own image, and called him Seth. It's language of relationship to be God's children. But it's also language of representation, of serving God in his work. And in Genesis 1, 28, God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So, So God made us to be his children, but also servants of his kingdom, to enjoy relationship with him, to reflect his glory, and to represent his rule on the earth. He made us for the family business. God wants to share that with us. His problem is that when he looks at his children, he really does have a hard time finding good help. There there is an undeniable problem with humanity, an undeniable problem that we are not as righteous as we ought to be. We're not as righteous as we ought to be. We've fallen short of God's standard, of His holiness, of of what He envisioned for His children, for His servants. Last week we looked at at God's law, the Ten Commandments, and, and that's one of the places where He reveals His standard in one of its most essential forms. As Pastor Randy mentioned last week, it's not as though God came to Israel in slavery and said, hey, here's my law. You keep this. I'll come back and get you out. God gave Israel, God first rescued Israel from their slavery. Then he gave them his law so that they might know how to live as his new people. He gave them a new way to live that's specifically a new way to live as his son and his servant, as his children and his servants. When he says to Moses in Exodus 4, he says, Israel is my firstborn son. And what I want you to say to Pharaoh is, let my son go that he may serve me. Israel is is to be a son and a servant. What went wrong with Adam in the garden, God is renewing through his people Israel. And and that same language, that same identity and responsibility of being a son and a servant uh, that we see in Exodus is picked up in Isaiah to describe Israel as well. In Isaiah 42, this is what God says about His people Israel. He says, "...behold my servant whom whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, he will bring forth justice to the nations." I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. God's people have a job. They have a job as His children, as representatives of His kingdom. He wants to display His glory He wants to express His rule, to spread His truth, and to establish His justice through His people. But we also saw last week how God's law is like an x-ray that exposes our hearts. Specifically, it exposes the sin and insufficiency of of our own lives, the fact that we can't actually keep the law that God's given us to keep. We fall short of his standard. Left to ourselves, we spend most of our time either ignoring God and his word or trying to figure out how to push him out and steal his throne, to hijack the family business. Because if we're honest, we all know we'd do a better job running it than dad. That's what we think. That's what Israel thought and did and tried to do. And it wasn't pretty in the very same chapter where God summarized Israel's job description as his servant in chapter 42, he says this about them in verse 19. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? Think about that the one whose job was to open blind eyes was actually blinder than anyone else due to their idolatry and their sin. We're not as righteous as we ought to be. And that's not just an ancient Israel problem. That's an everyone, everywhere problem. Deep down in our hearts, every one of us believes that, you know what, if if I were running this business, If I were running this world, I'd make a few changes. First, we'd have a slushy machine in the office constantly. I would have roads that no one else is allowed to drive on except for me. I would make up my own rules. I would decide for myself what is right and what is wrong, and it would be awesome, and I would be king. That's what we want. We want to be king. And what we don't realize is that's rebellion. That's insurrection against the true king. That is treason against God. Our righteousness is empty. It's empty. We don't measure up, and, and that means that left to ourselves, there's no place for us in His family. We deserve to be cast out from His presence under His judgment. And so, when God goes looking at his children, looking for someone to share the family business with, he can't find anyone. He can't find anyone. Not because he doesn't want to give it up, or not because he doesn't want to include us, but because none of us are fit. None of us are fit. We're morally and spiritually bankrupt. The Apostle Paul describes it like this in Romans 3. Says For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We have an undeniable problem, and we all know it. We, we may not be as bad as we could be, But we're not as righteous as we ought to be. And that makes us rebels against God. So what do we do with that? It's kind of a downer. Do we we just resign ourselves to live with guilt? Or resentment? Do we spend our days trying to make it up to Him? I'll prove Him that I'm worth it? Do we resign ourselves to simply just eat, drink, and be merry, and live however we want, because tomorrow we're going to die? Is it possible to still live for something more in the face of our empty righteousness? Is it possible to live for what we were made for, to live as God's children and servants of His kingdom? What hope do we have in the face of empty righteousness? According to our passage, we have the promise of redemption. We have the promise of redemption, of being purchased back for our original purpose. And and again, it's not what we do for God. It's what He promises to do for us. In Isaiah 49, verse 6, God promises to raise up a faithful servant to bring back His failed servant, Israel. He's going to raise up a representative to rescue His people, and more than that, to be a light to the nation so that that God's salvation can go to the, uh, the ends of the earth, to all people groups. God's going to exalt His servant in order to rescue His people. But what we find in our passage this morning in chapter 53 is what it will cost this servant to be exalted what price He must pay to secure our redemption. Isaiah 53 reveals to us God's unexpected plan to redeem His unrighteous people through an undeserving substitute with unbelievable results. And and that unexpected plan is, is unfolded in the first few verses of our chapter, 52, 13 to 53, verse 3. But notice how, how the song begins with a promise that God's servant will be exalted. He says in, in 52, 13, Behold, my servant shall act wisely, he shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. He'll be made much of. And then the song ends clear at the end of 53 by celebrating and confirming that promised exaltation, that, that he will, I will divide him a portion with the many, he shall divide the spoil with the strong, 53.12. That's victory language. This servant will be exalted. But the road to get there is completely unexpected. It is not the path uh, we would have chosen. It's not the way we would have tried to solve this problem of our unrighteousness. When we have a problem, uh, we try and find the best people to fix it, right? If you, you have a leaky faucet, And you go to Yelp or whatever and you're looking for a plumber, you're not going to pick the one with the worst reviews. You won't do that. Or if your team is struggling and and you're trying to make some mid-season trades, you're not looking for the athletes who ranked the lowest or who are the weakest or the slowest. You want the all-star. You want the new champion who's going to lead the team forward. Nor do you adopt a strategy that involves losing all of the remaining games in order to win the season title. That's not a plan anybody's ever going to approve of. We don't do that. That makes no sense. But what's shocking here is that is exactly what God seems to be doing in His plan to fix this problem. The, the servant He's going to exalt, the one who's going to secure our redemption, is the last person you'd ever expect. And everything He does looks like losing That's this unexpected plan. Look at the language of surprise or astonishment in the opening verses. He comes from an entirely unsuspecting origin. In 53, 2 through 3, for he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire. You know, If he were walking down the street, none of us would say, hey, that's the guy I want on my team. That's the guy who's going to save the company. Uh, He was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. He's the kind of guy that when he walks in the room, you pretend like you don't see him. We hide our faces from him. We don't even want to be associated with this guy. And this is the one God chooses to redeem his people? He's not a hero. He's not a winner. He's a seeming nobody, a loser. It's astonishing. And and, and then they're astonished at the brutality of his suffering of 5214. As many were astonished at you. His his appearance was so marred beyond, beyond human semblance in his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He was beaten so badly that he almost didn't look human anymore. That's the picture there. It's astonishing. It's gut-wrenching. In fact, this one, uh, he's the one who looks guilty of rebellion. It looks like he's the one under God's curse. He's the one receiving God's judgment. But then third, they're astonished that, that the one who looks like he's being judged by God... Is actually making atonement for the sin of others. Verse 15, as many as were astonished at you, so shall he sprinkle many nations. And That language of sprinkling, that's language of atonement. That's what the priests did. They sprinkled the blood to cleanse what was stained by sin. And so, as a result of this, kings will shut their mouths because of him. They will be speechless for that which has not been told them they see, that which they've not heard they understand. They, they did not see this coming, and they don't have anything to say about it now that it makes sense. Completely caught off guard, as he says in 53.1, who has believed what they heard from us? This is an utterly unbelievable, unexpected plan. Not what we would have come up with. So why must this servant suffer? Why is this his road to exaltation? Well, in verses 4 to 9, we learn that it's because he is an undeserving substitute. He's an undeserving substitute. He stands in place of sinful Israel, of sinful humanity, so that God might redeem his unrighteous people by dealing justly with sin and mercifully with sinners an undeserving substitute. Why is a seeming loser the answer to our problems and the fulfillment of God's plan? Well, there are four unmistakable truths here in verses 4 to 9. Four truths that really form the foundation of our redemption. And first is the fact that the servant is innocent. The servant is innocent. He is undeserving of the suffering that he endures. If you look at verse 9, They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. This servant who endures the judgment of God is actually innocent of the charges. He'd done no violence, no deceit. He was a faithful son and a faithful servant of God, which by the way, is one of the reasons that that the servant being described in chapter 53 cannot be ancient Israel. Uh, Critical scholarship, Jewish scholarship, will typically say, well, this is about Israel. But of all of the things that the book of Isaiah says about Israel, nowhere does it ever say they're innocent. Much of the book is an indictment against their covenant unfaithfulness and a promise of how God will redeem them from it. It's not because they weren't actually guilty all along this servant, however, is innocent. He's not guilty. That's the first unmistakable truth. The second is that he suffers as a substitute. I mean, why is he so severely punished? Is, is, you know, is this just a cruel injustice of the world and another innocent victim? Uh, Did God arrest the wrong guy? Did God make a mistake by punishing this guy? No, he suffers as a substitute. He's an undeserving substitute who's taking the place of those who actually deserve it. Look again at verses 4 to 6, and and pay attention to the pronouns in these verses. That's like the, the he, she, our, us, those kinds of words. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Do you see that language of substitution, of exchange? All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The servant takes on himself the punishment of God that we actually deserve. Our little attempt to take over the company, to run God out and run things our way, what should have gotten us fired and disowned, the servant takes that punishment for us. He gets fired. He gets disowned. We read Psalm 22 earlier, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the cry. As verse 10 describes it a little bit later, his soul makes an offering for sin or an offering for guilt. And that word refers here to the guilt offering in Leviticus 5. It's an offering that's designed To atone for or cancel the guilt of those who've broken God's law. His soul, his life makes that offering. All of those older blood sacrifices of the law, they were all pointing forward to what this servant would do. Something he's able to do because he's innocent. And then, third, the third point, the third truth here is that he gives his life willingly. What he does in this song, he does of his own accord. Sometimes the idea of substitutionary atonement is uh, written off as being too violent or, or too unjust. It's likened to a kind of cosmic child abuse, where a vengeful father punishing his son for something he didn't even commit. But look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Why would he not open his mouth? I mean, why why not call out for help? Why not uh, protest this unjust treatment? Why did he remain silent? Because he was giving his life willingly. He was on board with the plan. That was how much this servant loved the people being redeemed. The fourth unmistakable truth here is that the servant's suffering culminates in death. That's where it leads. It culminates in death. His life is taken from him. Verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? To be cut off out of the land of living is a metaphor for death. You're no longer in the place where people are alive. And and in case that metaphor is not strong enough, the very next verse tells us they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his grave. Death. The servant dies. He suffers willingly and willingly pays the ultimate price his life in place of ours. And notice again the the emphasis on the substitutionary relationship there. He was stricken for the transgression of my people. So he didn't just suffer because of Israel's sin. He didn't just suffer with Israel in their sin. He suffered for their sin. He bore their punishment. As the song we sang earlier says, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. So what are the results of all of this? What what did the servant, this willing servant, undeserving servant actually accomplish through his suffering on our behalf. Verses 10 through 12 show us the unbelievable result. Two things, the servant's exaltation, his victory, and our redemption. Two unbelievable results. First, on the basis of his willing substitution, God's unrighteous people are redeemed. What we couldn't fix ourselves, God fixed for us through the life, death, and resurrection of this servant. Look at the middle of verse 11. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So, think about what he's saying there. He's saying that rebels who are guilty of iniquity, fancy word for sin, rebels are going to be declared righteous. Not because they weren't actually guilty, but because the righteous one, my servant, took their place. That's what he's saying. The end of verse 12, he puts it like this, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession intercession the transgressors. So through his death, he brings rebels back into right relationship with God. By his wounds, we are healed. We're made whole. What God is doing through this suffering servant is putting this broken world and our broken lives back together, rescuing us from sin, restoring us to the family, reigniting our mission for the kingdom, the family business. That's what we call redemption. Redemption. It's, we've been reclaimed, restored, renewed in our relationship and service to God at the expense of the servant's life. We've been redeemed. And because the servant was willing to do that, to, to take this lowly path of suffering and, and, and this, to be our willing substitute to the point of death, because of that, not despite that, but because of that, he is then exalted in victory. He's exalted in victory. The servant who was cut off from the land of the living, verse 8, whose grave was made with the wicked, verse 9, who poured out his soul, his life, unto death, who was crushed by the Lord's own sovereign plan, verse 10, this servant Look at how he ultimately ends up. The middle of verse 10. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Prosper. I thought he lost. I thought he got himself killed. I mean, the servant died, but but he's going to see his offspring and prolong his days? That does not sound like what happens in the grave. Look at verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see, or, or perhaps see light and be satisfied. Dead people don't see stuff. Verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Again, that. That's victory language. The the words portion and spoil, those are the rewards of winning a war, not what happens when you lose your life and get buried in the grave. So, So what do we make of the exaltation that Isaiah is looking forward to? What he's implying here in verse, in chapter 53, is that God is going to vindicate his servant. He's going to clear his name of the charges against. He's going to reward him for his faithfulness, and he's going to do that precisely by raising him from the dead. The servant who suffers willingly in place of God's people to redeem them from unrighteousness will be exalted. What looked like losing was all along really the only actual way to win. And of course that victory was ultimately accomplished and secured by Jesus Christ. I haven't used his name yet in the sermon, but you've been picturing him the entire passage because you can't help it. It's so clearly about him. He's the fulfillment of this passage. It is it's remarkable to read something that was written 700 plus years before Christ's birth that so clearly describes his identity and his work. He's the faithful son of God that Adam and Israel and you and I failed to be. The faithful servant who does all of his father's will. And of course, that was his point in Luke 24. We looked at a few weeks ago, and he's talking with his disciples, and he says to them, These are my words that I spoke while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. It was always looking forward to him. We we come to know Jesus not just by reading the New Testament, but by reading the Old Testament as well, the promises that he fulfills. And he has fulfilled these promises for you. For you. For his Father and for His kingdom. He willingly endured the shame of the cross in our place that we might share in His righteousness, enjoy His relationship with the Father, and follow Him in faithful service to God. It is possible, in the face of our empty righteousness, to live and do what we were made to live and to do. But it's only possible through our Redeemer, Jesus. Only possible through Him. Again, it's it's not what we do for God, it's what He has done for us. And if that's the case, if that's true, then you don't have to be afraid to admit your failures. You don't have to walk in here every Sunday pretending like you've got it together. Because the reality is, none of us do. None of us do. But but what matters is not what we do for God. It's what Christ has done for us. That's what makes us acceptable before the Father. That's what makes us family. It's what He's done for us and what He's doing in us to continually make us more and more like Christ. In fact, it's not until we can admit our own failures and sin that we can finally begin living faithfully for God. Owning our unrighteousness is what ultimately frees us to rest completely in the righteousness of Christ for us. That glorious, liberating truth that that my acceptance before the Father, my invitation into His presence, my confidence in prayer my security in His kingdom, none of it's based on what I do, but what Christ has done for me. Glorious, liberating truth. Rest in the righteousness of Christ. Whether that means putting your faith in Christ for the first time, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, uh, recognizing, wow, I really am spiritually bankrupt. I've got nothing and confessing that sin to God and trusting in Christ alone as your Savior and King, or whether that means continuing to to depend on Christ's righteousness as I try to follow Him each day. It's something we have to fight for every single day, to to let go of my own self-righteousness, to take my guilt and my shame and bring it once again to the cross, where His mercies are new every single day to find sweet comfort and rest in Him. And as a people who are redeemed by His righteousness, in Him we're finally able to serve the Lord with confidence as beloved children and joyful servants. One of the interesting tidbits about Isaiah, about the book of Isaiah, is that Uh, Up through chapter 53 Every time the word servant is used It's singular It's always referring to the collective Either the people Israel, the servant Or their representative After chapter 53 It's always used in the plural Emphasizing the personal role That every single one of us play Having been redeemed Now we have work to do We have work to do We're finally able to Do our part in the family business We've been redeemed not for ourselves or our own ambition, but for God's kingdom and glory. We've been qualified and commissioned to make much of God through His Son and the power of the Spirit to help every person we meet take their next step with Jesus. And and the fruit of all of that is not making ourselves look good. It's not the reputation of Stonebridge. It's not the reputation of me. The one who gets lifted high and exalted as a result of this passage is Jesus Christ. His name, His glory. He's the one who willingly gave His life. He's the one who is exalted in victory. And so, let's serve Him together, taking our redemption in Christ seriously, and let's rejoice in and rest in that redemption. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you that we have so rich a redemption in Christ. We who did not deserve it, You have lavished your grace upon us, God. We praise you for that, and we pray that that we would take that seriously, Lord. We would rest in the finished work of Jesus, and that out of that redemption, we would serve you faithfully, God. And Lord, as we gather at your table now, would you remind us of that gracious truth that you have done the work. We are the joyful, humble recipients.